This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. I am so happy to be here. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by Simon Belanger. You, you knew we were recording this Friday morning and you put on blue again. You're like, you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> last last time I got compl- compliments, I got a roll with it. Yeah, no, I just, I, it was actually a coincidence. I just grabbed the first thing I could put my hands on <laughs> after uh, doing my my bike uh, training this morning. boy, It is Friday, January 27th. We don't often do Fridays, but we're doing Friday and uh, it feels good. Um, Simon, how's, are you guys getting dumped on with snow right now? Is yeah, it, uh... yeah, it was really bad. In Ottawa, I think uh, we got pretty much like 30, 35 centimeters here. So it was uh, over a foot. Really? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. In like, oh, a, yeah. in like a day, right? Yeah, like I would say like 12 hour span. Yeah, overnight oh, mostly. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you the view I'm looking at because it's just, it's just, it's just cruel at this point. Today we're going to talk about... Uh, the Bernie Madoff documentary. Uh, let's kick it off with that. And then you're going to talk about investing in emerging markets. And then just because it is earnings season in full swing, and there's some companies we want to talk about, like Visa MasterCard, ASML, we're going to do some earnings. And then we're going to round it out with uh, stocks on our watch list, which uh, is a favorite segment of both us and the listeners. So uh, stay tuned for our watch list at the end of the show. Um, all right, let's talk about this Bernie Madoff Netflix documentary. Did you watch all of it by chance? Yeah, yeah I did, but a couple weeks ago, so it's still uh, okay. Um, it's still relatively fresh, but uh, probably fresher for you, I think. Um, I'm about in the same time frame, maybe a little, or maybe like three weeks ago. But it's 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 one of those things where it's so dirty the, the watching it that you, you like. You almost want to forget the details because it's so like th- there's no happy ending in this in this fraud and and just like it's just devastating. So you almost need to like take a shower after you watch that that Netflix documentary. Um, all right, so we'll get into it here. As you know, I'm not like a big movie guy, not a big TV guy, but but oh baby, documentaries are my thing and. There's layers to this as well, like white collar crime documentaries. I can't look away, even if like there's a niche. Do you know about the niche on YouTube, like Coffeezilla? Yeah, for example, like people exposing frauds and and internet scammers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, these people are doing God's work. Yeah, Coffeezilla is pretty good, so I do follow him. I haven't watched all his videos, but uh, definitely took note uh, with the whole FTX thing, and then uh, started watching right. a couple others. Yeah, they're doing they're doing God's work to protect people because you know you got to get the word out on these fraudsters and scammers, and often it's. It's these like DIY journalists that are doing better work than uh, than mainstream media and and perhaps the regulators, which we'll get to. Um, anyways, the Madoff documentary, a, a very quick recap. Um, there's lots to know, the players involved and the timeline of how it all unfolds. But here's my like one minute recap version. Bernie Madoff ran two businesses on Wall Street. 
in the same tower of New York City. And one was a market-making business that actually employed close to or over 100 traders at their peak. This was a legitimate business. It was doing a significant amount of volume for trading for Wall Street. And this was what the general public knew Bernie's success was from. And he was outright successful from this business in his own right. And it was a very legitimate, regulated, market-making trading business for Wall Street. Um, and at, at the time when, when margins were really good on market-making, this business was printing cash. So Bernie was well-respected on Wall Street. He even served as the chairman of the NASDAQ for three years, which is crazy thinking back uh, because now we know how this all, uh, all unfolds. He was trusted by the SEC. Overall, his reputation was a pr of a proper businessman. Now, the other business that was going on this whole time in the background, illegally and under the radar, was what came to be a sixty-plus billion dollar Ponzi scheme, uh, a, an outright fraud, an outright, outright dirty crime. Like it just no remorse. And what they did, Simone, and feel free to chime in on any details if, if you think of them, but they would basically just run a, a, a normal Ponzi, but they would be taking money and pretend to be investing that money under Madoff's um, investment advisory business. And they would print fake statements, create fake trades, and deliver these fantastic, stable, never losing money returns back to the people who were investing their money, but they were not actually investing their money. They were just giving money to Bernie Madoff, who was running a Ponzi scheme with that cash. So he was funneling billions of dollars from high net worth individual and, and, and feeder funds at first. And then here's where it gets crazy. He was investigated by the SEC. Somehow the SEC didn't catch his fraud, was given the green light, and they basically just said, hey, hey, Bernie, um, this illegal unregistered investment advisory business, which was actually a Ponzi scheme, it's all good. Just, Bernie, please just, just go ahead and register the advisory business, and then, you know, then you can at least operate this thing legally. Um, thanks, Bernie. What a load of shite that is, uh, first of all. And then once he was investigating, given the green light, now billion-dollar hedge funds, mostly from Europe, were now Ponzi, piling money into this Ponzi as well. It ballooned with earliest reports of fake trades from the 1970s all the way until the financial crisis of 2008. The stock market crashed, devastating global recession, and the Ponzi had a bank run. Uh, that's really what happened, right? The, the, bands, the, the Ponzi had a, a bank run with all these withdrawals, and it basically immediately exploded. Now, I'll, I'll round this out just with Bernie eventually pled guilty. He received 150 years of prison time and eventually did die in jail in 2021. Any, any high-level stuff I'm missing uh, in the story? Uh, yeah, so the first thing I would mention is there is some good news for the investors that were kind of, you know, obviously were 
Bernie Madoff committed the fraud is I was looking up while we were talking and I had heard these figures before. So they ended up recouping around 81% of their investments originally. Obviously, it took an extremely long period of time. I think um, that came out the most recent figures in late 2021. So I think it's a good example, especially if we're trying to compare and pull some parallels between. But you know how they sorry to interrupt, but you know how they did it, right? Like they basically were having to give money from like the people who made money from the Ponzi back to people who lost money in the Ponzi. Yeah, they forced them to repay. Yeah. But that's problematic. Say, say I made all that money. It was my nest egg in the late nineties, and then I no longer have it. I'm in my seventies now. And I have to give away a million dollars that I probably don't have or definitely need to someone else randomly. Like, I'm also a victim in this situation. Like, I I don't think anyone wins there. Like, I don't know what the best way to do it is, but it's it's not just like, yeah, 80% of the funds were recuperated. The way it, it was done was basically these victims got screwed twice. That's how they recoup the money. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, that's true. And they do talk about that uh, in the documentary where there are some pretty sad situations. Obviously, I'm sure some of the investors had no, you know, no financial issues being able to repay it back. So it's kind of a case by case. But they do talk that there's not really an ideal kind of resolution when it comes to that. And even the 81% when you put in perspective, right, um, you could have easily in the S&P 500 probably more than doubled your money during that same period of time. So right. you have to keep yeah. that in mind where 81% is not all that great. Um, if people want to look up uh, kind of an interesting fact in all of that is the uh, Mets owner at the time. And I kind of, I forget the name of the Mets owners, but uh, I know the story. So I listen sometimes to Steve Phillips, who used to be the general manager. Are you talking about Steve Cohen? No, no, that's the new a uh, new Mets owner, but oh, the okay. Mets owner at the time, okay. he was, and they do mention his name during the um, during the documentary of that family. I think it's a Will Bond family or something like that, but um, I'm not quite sure. I might have it wrong, but regardless, what happened is they um, there's a famous contract called the uh, from uh, Bobby Bonilla where they, instead of paying him all the money up front for the contract, they agreed with him to space it out over like something like 30 years, 1 million a year, because the owner said, we want this player, yes, but we're making 15% guaranteed with Bernie Madoff. So let's spread it out. Yeah. Let's spread it out over like a super long period of time and we'll actually make money on it. So that's an interesting kind of fun fact. Uh, people can just look up Bobby Bonilla and they'll kind of look the, uh, be able to see the background story. Um, and the last thing that stood with me on that documentary is at some point, and I'm probably butchering the quote here, is that they refer to blue-collar crime, so crime that's, you know, it could be murder, shoplifting, something like that, right, where the, um, you know, the investigation or the, the bodies, if you like, if you're comparing to murder, they actually come before the investigation, where in white-collar crimes like this, the bodies actually come after the investigation, so, mm-hmm. you know, you talk and there's unfortunately people that took their lives, including one of his sons and some other investors. Yeah. So I think that's super dark, man. Yeah. It's so dark. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's something to uh, keep in mind. Obviously, there's some 
I think parallels and differences between this and FTX and FTX, we still don't know the full story. Um, I guess we'll know in the next year or two as it goes to court or if there is a plea deal, whatever happens there. But with FTX, a lot of the things that happen is, you know, investors were just not doing any due diligence, whereas this one, some investors were not doing due diligence, probably the majority, but some were. And Madoff went out of his way and his team to actually produce false documents. Um, so that's one of the, the key differences here. I think it's important to, uh, to, to remember. I'm sure there's going to be some very similar things that will be happening as well. But um, it's kind of interesting to see that documentary and seeing in real time what's happening with FTX too. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, there's definitely some things that kind of rhyme with two situ, but those two situations, which is um, you have someone hiding in plain sight for one, and two commingling of funds between two businesses. Um, that is a that is something that stood out to me in drawing a parallel for sure, because there there's commingling happening with his investment advisory business and the trading arm business. Uh, same with you know Alameda and uh, and, and FTX. Um, so I, I'll break this down into four thoughts, um, which is I, I have these four thoughts prepared, and and the first one is some of the largest con artists pulling off these gigantic billion dollar plus Ponzi schemes love to hide in plain sight. They thrive off attention and, to feed their ego, and and they hide right where everyone can find them, including the law. Number two, the length sociopaths will go to fool their victims is hard to fathom. Um, and so you have to do the, the right amount of research. This one, like, I don't know how you could do enough research. If you can fool the regular, you're going to fool investors as well. So this one, I, I man, it's just sad. Uh, three, regulators can be corrupt. And then honestly, in this case, downright lazy, not doing their jobs. They were handed significant evidence that Bernie Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme in the year of 2000, a literally 100-page document with 34 reasons with proof outlining to the SEC every single year from 2000 all the way until it blew up. They had sufficient evidence um, that this was uh, an illegal Ponzi scheme. So make sure to always do your investigations on your own with big financial decisions. I mean, people can get fooled, clearly, in this situation. But it's just a reminder, big financial decisions, like, like huge ones, it's, it's too expensive to get wrong. Uh, number four, there's basically no happy ending here with some of this white-collar crime. You know, the last episode showing his family, the fallout, the victims... You mentioned it. it. It's really, really dark. So if you do watch the show, um, just have that in mind. You know, like there, there's no real like, you know, real like success at the end. Like it's it's really dark and especially, you know, people taking their own lives at the end. So just just, just to warn people who do watch it, it's uh, it's not a fun time, but it's certainly very gripping to watch how this a gigantic piece of history uh, for financial nerds like us, how it unfolded. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's well put. And I think I would probably just add to what you said. 
it doesn't mean that some well-known investors are investing in something in particular that it's necessarily a good investment like we saw it and i'll go back to the ftx thing right you have these major supposed to be you know really good investors and institutions putting money in it and you know if you just kind of follow what they're doing well you would have lost all your money obviously it wasn't open to regular investor like you and i and people listening but i think that's just a good reminder to always do your due diligence even if warren buffett invests in something i mean he's made some bad moves in the in the past he's made some tremendous moves as well but just a reminder to always do your own research and you know make your own thesis because you know, people, even as good as they might be, sometimes they miss something. Yeah, you can't follow people into trades because you, you can't borrow someone else's conviction no matter what it is. Like Sequoia, fooling Sequoia uh, for FTX's example, like, dude, they're they're the, like one of the name brands in Silicon Valley for venture capital investing. So like, you know, you get the stamp of approval from Sequoia and, uh, you know, you, you, it's a ticket to print a, uh, fooling a lot of other people as well. All right, let's move on to your next segment here, talking merging markets. Yeah, so I'm going to try and make the case for investing in merging markets. I'll I'll try to do that over a couple of podcasts because I started working on this segment and I'm like, you know what? Um, it probably would be a full episode and then some, and obviously we want to do other segments. Uh, and there's definitely, I want to make sure I do proper research and I bring some good value to listeners. So we have talked in length um, the past couple months or past year, I would say, investing in China. It was something uh, I was invested through, through the KWeb ETF and Tencent. I sold both of my position a few months ago because I just didn't think the political geopolitical risk in china was just too great uh obviously in hindsight i probably should have waited a bit but at the same time i did not know where it was going to go at the time there's been a bit of a rally there probably a base on the air quote reopening of china but i still wouldn't feel comfortable investing in china and that's why i took that decision because the direction of China as a whole, the Chinese Communist Party, and the control that Xi Jinping has over it um, is just worrisome because you really don't know where they're going to go. And I think the zero COVID policy is a perfect example of that because, you know, late as last fall, they were saying that basically they were continuing with this zero COVID policy. And then in December, they basically pretty much started reopening everything and did a 180 there, which, you know, you can debate whether that was the right approach or not. That's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say is just they make these decisions and they come out of the blue, right? No one could have predicted just such a sudden turn of events. So that's the main reason why for me, Investing directly in China is not in the cards anymore. I do still have some exposures through some investments that I have in businesses that will do business there. Apple's a, a prime example here. Um, did you want to say anything on China or just uh, let me keep going on that, Brandon? Did you? I think I missed this. Did you close out KWeb? Yeah, as yeah well? I closed out both. Yeah, yeah. You did. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad you touched on the the Apple thing too, right? Because... Somehow they just get a free pass in terms of like the China risk. Um, yeah. Um, maybe because they just print hundreds of billions of dollars a year. That also helps. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it is the wild card. I'm glad 
financially that I didn't capitulate and sell it because I think my Tencent position is up like 90% since we uh, talked about how grim it is over there. But I mean, that's where stocks and markets find bottoms is when there's just, it looks terrible. Like the future prospects, the uncertainty is at all time uh, doubts is when you find a bottom. Um, And that's why I'm always just cautious for, for selling anything when I think that the the real business fundamentals are intact. This one's weird because the business fundamentals and the geopolitical concerns intersect um, very often in this situation. So yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to, yeah, it's hard. It's a challenging situation is what it is. Yeah. And the challenge with China too, there's always that doubt, right? That there may be not, be full transparency even in those financial statements right so there's always that you know you never know for sure so i just didn't feel comfortable with the risk but again it was a small position for me because i always had that kind of cautiousness about china and just the fact that you know in the past three four years there's always been some you know it's intensified recently but uh you know there was always that risk in china but Regardless, I still think there's a case to be made for investing in emerging markets because there's there's other countries other than China. And the three areas I'll be focusing uh, more in the next uh, couple releases that we have on Mondays will be Southeast Asia, Brazil and India. So Southeast Asia, for those not aware, it typically includes uh, Myanmar, Burma. Uh, well, Myanmar or in brackets, Perma here, Cambodia, Timor Leste, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, and Bruni. Um, so these are kind of all lumped in here. And the upcoming hearing week- that makes me want to get my backpack, get on a plane, and uh, <laughs> bring absolutely nothing for a couple months and live like a, a backpacker. No, 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 exactly. (laughs) And then in the upcoming weeks, I'll definitely do a segment on each of them because I think it's important to look at data data for each and not lump them all together, especially if you're looking at potential ETFs, right, or investing in certain businesses. Um, There are some ETFs that will be focusing on all those geographical regions. And I'll just finish on this. Um, The reason why I talked about China is... Um, I'll go over some examples here of businesses that are shifting away from China. So for the most part, it's productions here. But um, I'll start here with BlackRock in November. They mentioned that they were indefinitely postponing the launch of a bond ETF uh, in China. From what I've read, it sounds like BlackRock was concerned about potential backlash from the U.S. government. Another example here is Nike. They've already started shifting its production from China to Southeast Asia and Africa. Puma is another one. They started shifting its production from China to Southeast Asia. And these um, clothing retailers, what's interesting here is uh, there was a bit of a backlash in China in 2021 with some of the human rights issues happening where people were actually boycotting in China those brands because of that. So that's just uh, an extra tidbit uh, that's interesting. Hasbro. The toy maker has already begun shifting its production from China to India and Vietnam following the U.S.-China trade war that started during the Trump presidency. Samsung's another company that has shifted its production away from China in favor of Vietnam. Alphabet is another one moving the production away from China. Alphabet or Google, for those not familiar, um, they are not in China. However, they were manufacturing the Pixel smartphone 
over there. So they're moving that from China to Vietnam. And then the behemoth Apple, like uh, we mentioned here, they are starting to move their production away from China. Their latest move is that they will move away from the manufacturing of MacBooks from China to Vietnam. They've also begun moving the assembly for iPhones from China to India, but it is still predominantly done in China. The figures I saw, it's they're still at like 90 to 95% still done in China. And the estimate I've seen is three to four years for most of its iPhones to be assembled outside of China because it's such, you know, at a large scale. Uh, but it's important to keep in mind, they're really just assembled in China. So the production of the most crucial parts of the iPhones, for example, they're done by Taiwan Semiconductor, so they're not done in China. So that's the uh, the semiconductors inside of those phones. So that's a, an overview and some of the reasons why I think the three regions I talked about could be benefiting from a move away from China. And then, like I said, in the upcoming Monday's episode, I'll come out with more data in terms of foreign investments and things like that for each region. Speaking of Taiwan Semiconductor and and. Have you seen the moves just on semis since like November? It's been insane. Oh, yeah. Well, I have ASML. It's almost doubled since I bought it. <laughs> Congratulations. I, when we were, I think we timed this really well. You and I were super bullish on semis when basically right at the bottom. I'm um, not saying we try to time anything, but it, our screens just came up like these things became screaming cheap, like overnight almost. Um, back to the emerging markets discussion, like I don't have a whole lot of thoughts here other than there's many ways to go about getting geographic diversification. Um, and I think that it's so important that we talk about it because like even when I was, th- I was thinking about this last night, I was like, you know, I always rip on Canadian home bias and I'm guilty of it too. I don't think that my position, my, my portfolio has really any Canadian home bias other than maybe currency risk. When I, I'm worried about businesses that only operate in certain geographies and have no ability to kind of get global scale. Um, and there's lots of Canadian businesses that get global scale. Um, and, and so you can get diversification through what you're talking about or through businesses that have global scale. But, you know, I'm not saying anything really unique here. I I think that we've talked about that extensively. Yeah, no, no, that's a fair point. I do get interested in getting like, especially if I'm bullish about a certain region um, for emerging markets, I do like having some exposure. I've had some in the past for ETFs, uh, but I definitely understand what you're saying. There's a big difference uh, investing, for example, in a Canadian tire, which, you know, it's a it's a good business. It's just the growth prospects won't be massive going forward versus uh, a company like I don't know anyone that comes to mind right now, but let's say even a Shopify, right? They're completely different types of business. I know Shopify goes at way higher premium and all that, but Shopify will have clients around the world. So you do have those different types of misses businesses, whereas Canadian Tire, like, you know, I don't think Canadian Tire is going to start opening that stores in the US. The only businesses I see here in because uh, I'm in Costa Rica right now, I'm Latin America. The only businesses that I see literally interact with daily that are like American companies, like on a daily basis, are Visa, Mastercard because they are completely. I mean, people still use cash, but they have gone so digital with payments so fast. And Coca Cola, 
that's like yeah. those those I see everything else seems to be you know maybe some of the packaged goods companies like the uh, some of those conglomerates like uh Procter and Gamble and stuff of course but really like it, it, it's it's surprising like there's still a lot of penetration available in, in some of these smaller emerging markets um dude how much better does coca-cola taste out of a glass bottle like what is with that why does it taste like literally 40 times better i've never never you've never, <laughs> never noticed that really thought about it really no i mostly drink it out of uh yeah the can or if i'm had a party or something the big bo- plastic bottles well but, they don't uh, sell it in yeah. glass bottles in in canada no no you gotta right. be out of the country yeah. It's uh it's a game changer. Like it tastes literally so much better. Um speaking of two businesses that are definitely alive and well here, let's talk about MasterCard and Visa. I'm gonna talk about them together. They just both reported earnings yesterday, MasterCard in the morning, Visa in the afternoon. And I own them equal weight, as many of you know. It's like, you know, you can't pick a favorite child. They're visually the same business and capturing wonderful unit economics. And potentially the greatest network effects maybe on planet Earth. And you know, I'm I'm seeing them daily here, right? So um let's talk MasterCard first. Quarterly results. I'm just gonna talk about the high level table that they provide in their press release here, which is net revenue on currency neutral was up 17%. Very impressive. Operating income up 19%. They did have double-digit increase on uh, operating expenses at 14%, but still being outpaced by net revenues. Uh, Their margins expanded by one percentage point to an operating margin of nearly 55%. Dude, it's funny, these these companies, like their EBIT margin is their free cash flow margin. And like you have those sustained 50 plus percent free cash flow margins for a long period of time, uh, ridiculous ROICs. Like these numbers are only sustained on truly effective moats, effective power sustained for a long time, and just ridiculous unit economics that can't be disrupted. Um, it, it's a it's a wonderful thing. Earnings per share increased fourteen percent on Mastercard. Cross border volume was up fifty nine percent, a huge part of their business. So people. People tap in their card uh, cross-border like I am doing very often right now and certainly handing Visa a quite amount of money here. Here's a quote from the MasterCard CEO, Michael Meebach. While, mic- while macroeconomic and geopolitical uncertainty persists, consumer spending has been remarkably resilient. Quarter after quarter, they're saying the same thing. Um, let's talk about Visa. Net revenues are up 12%. So MasterCard definitely had a a bigger quarter, in my opinion. Like just, just numbers-wise, I have not dug into the calls. I have not done a lot of work on this, but that's because like it's literally been a couple hours. Um, net income was up uh, 12%, but on earnings per share base, 21%. So, you know, the buyback machine is alive and well on uh, on a non-gap basis. Cross-border volumes up on a similar a similar rate, um, and so seeing that come back to now like all-time highs, you have all-time highs on transaction volume. It's inflation resilient, uh, of course, because they're taking a, a paper cut away from every transaction. 
it's dude these businesses are incredibly amazing incredibly resilient people say eventually they'll get disrupted because the unit economics are too good i'm not i'm not saying that that can't happen i'm just saying that it's very difficult to do it yeah no it's uh definitely good quarters over there um it's always interesting to see what happens as the economy shifts but again uh Seems like so far uh, has an effective Visa and MasterCard. So I own both businesses. And one thing I've been debating where I'm not sure um, if I'll pull the trigger or not because it's a small position, but uh, just potentially selling PayPal and just focusing on Visa and MasterCard. Because the more I look at it, the more I'm like, you know, I think there's it's easy for more competitors to come in and disrupt PayPal. It's going to be a lot harder to disrupt a Visa and MasterCard. I have been doing everything I can to use WISE, which used to be called TransferWise, instead of PayPal. Because it is just superior in every way. Like it's, it's on the fees, on the UI, on the everything, the connectivity, especially if you're doing it for business. So I, 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 I share your sentiment anecdotally. And my goodness, PayPal's customer support sucks if you're a business. Like <laughs> It is horrendous when I try to use it for, for business. It, 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 it's mind-blowing how bad the customer support is. Anyways, this is a bunch of anecdotal stuff, but it's anecdotal enough for me to be just bearish on PayPal, even if the numbers keep looking like you know relatively solid. No, nope, no, that's a fair point. So I'll move on here, completely different type of business. Um, look at the uh, earnings from ASML. It was Q4 and full year. The amounts OB in euros because they're located in the Netherlands here. For those of you who are maybe newer to the podcast and uh, we discussed ASML, I think, late in 2022. And ASML essentially just uh, produces, manufactures these lithography machines. There's two main types. There's extreme ultraviolet systems, which they're the only ones in the world to actually produce that. So they have a monopoly on those. And then there's the uh, deep ultraviolet systems. And those, they're actually not as advanced as the uh, EUV one. So the first one I talked about. So the DUVs is just uh, the deep ultraviolet. They're not as advanced. Um, There are a couple other producers. So it's still not many businesses that produce that. So just to get some context here, now net sales for ASML grew 14% to 21.2 billion. EUV system sales grew 12% to 7 billion. DUV system sales grew 13% to 7.7 billion. The sales by segment now, so logic system revenues grew 4% to 10 billion. So logic would be like micro processors those would be logic memory system revenues grew 35 percent to 5.5 billion install base management sales grew 16 percent to 5.7 billion so that's just essentially them uh, maintaining for their clients these machines ensuring they keep working well and at the end of 2022 they had a 14.4 billion backlog which is an increase of 67 percent compared to the end of 2021 their gross margins, operating margins, and net income margins were all down for the year. That's mostly due to higher labor costs and increased research and development spending. 
R&D spending increased 28% to $3.3 billion, which is very important. I think you want to see R&D spend for a company like ASML because this is what will allow them to stay at the forefront of new technology. And that's a big edge for them because it's very difficult to develop. And the fact that they have a monopoly in EUV shows that it's extremely difficult to develop that kind of technology. EPS was down 1.5% to $14.14 per share. And free cash flow declined 27% to $7.2 billion. They expect continued strength in sales for 2023, especially given that their customers expect the semiconductor market to rebound in the second half of 2023. Given the lead time on production of these DUV and EUV system, customers have to place orders well in advance because they take so much time to actually produce. They expect next sales for net sales for the full year to be around up around 25% based on their current view of the world right now. A slight decrease in Q1 and then a big increase for the rest of the year. The expected delivery for 2023 is 60 UV system and 375 DUV systems, and they authorize a new share repurchase program of up to 12 billion euros. The last thing I'll say here is Peter Winnick, the CEO, also talked about the geopolitical front, which has been a big thing for anyone who's following ASML here or even a Taiwan Semiconductors are definitely two of the businesses that are the most effective here. They said that that's out of their control, but they continue to provide feedback on consequences of different export controls. And 2022 was status quo with China. They were not able to ship any of their most advanced systems, so the EUVs to China, but continue to ship the UV systems. And they will be continuing their discussion with the, uh, you know, the different nations to make sure that, uh, you know, they provide the feedback here. But at the end of the day, um, it's out of their control. And there's a lot of different moving parts and a lot of different countries involved in those discussions, as we all know. Um, So that's it for ASML. Did you have anything to add, Breda? Sometimes the timing just works out. And uh, it, it certainly worked out here for you. Dude, this thing is such a beast and I'm glad you touched on the backlog and just how hot the demand is because you're right, like the nature of this business, like you you, you can't afford not to to get in the queue with ASML, right? Because this is the definition of what Jack Acri calls a bottleneck business. It's It's a bottleneck in their supply chain and it's a bottleneck that they're fed opportunities from the market that they play in. And ASML is the Perfect, perfect example of that. And you're right. We're, we're talking about super long lead times, very like modi business, and extremely difficult to replicate. There are over one hundred thousand parts in one ultraviolet lithography machine. Like that is uh, that is insane. Uh, so. Dude, it's it's really defensible at this point. The if you zoom out and you look at the backlog, how much it's grown, and I, and I do agree with you that it's much more sticky than the cyclical nature that semis get get awarded with. And that was that was your opportunity uh, when you purchased the stock a hundred percent ago. So uh, congrats to you. Nothing like a a fire up on your workout, like listening to Intel's uh, dumpster fire of an earnings call. 
Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Intel's definitely one that's uh, much different, not in a great spot. I would urge people to be careful and do their due diligence if they're looking at Intel. And I did listen to their, um, not all of it, but most of the conference call and some of the questions that they received uh, for Intel. And it's not looking great. Uh, obviously, their revenues are way, way down. Um, they're in the midst of a massive transition right now. And the biggest issue with Intel is that it's an integrated, a chip or semiconductor business so they design their own chips but they also produce them and they have they are behind in terms of technology to producing them compared to a taiwan semiconductor which focuses only on producing chips they do not design any chips they get those designs from amd apple nvidia and a bunch of other companies they produce it they focus on their customers they have no interest of copying their potential designs whereas intel is kind of trying to do everything at once here so they're trying to design their chips produce them but also get customers to produce the chips for them and customers will be reluctant to do that especially you know i'm thinking amd here i'd be worried if i were them if i actually designed a great chip sent it over to intel for production and then you know the next thing i know a couple years down the line intel's actually copied the design and has a very similar chip in their lineup so that's where it's a bit of a um, head scratcher in my opinion for intel is they're trying to do a lot of these different things all at once and the last thing i'll say here is why are they keeping that dividend i mean if you're trying to turn the business around your tech business you're investing heavily for the future why are you spending over five billion a year in a dividend i mean i think the market would take this as a positive way if you cut it, I would just remove it altogether and focus on turning around. I think that's the right move. The sentiment is already pessimistic enough for Intel. Rip off the Band-Aid and just cut that dividend. It makes no sense. And while you're talking, I think you put that well. It's like the this business has changed where the integrated companies are not doing either of the either of their jobs particularly well. And the designers are doing their job well. And the foundry, the pure play foundries are doing their job well, aka TSM. So the integrated companies, like your designs are subpar and your foundry business is subpar. You don't fit in this ecosystem doing either of them extremely well. And so what do you do? You're in a tough spot. Like they're, they're so big that like making these large axe decisions to pivot their business is impossible. And this start all started those dominoes really started to fall when they lost apple right uh as as a major customer to, to tsm they've been lost in doing neither of their jobs as good as their competitors and so uh capitalism will do the rest from there right yeah, exactly. I think that's well put. And I think the issues too for Intel, for anyone potentially wanting to invest with them, is they're not even sure how the business will be doing the next year or two down the line. They they said they provided some guidance for the first half of 2023. And beyond that, they said, uh, we're, we're actually, we don't know what the environment will look like. They There was a lot of blaming on like external factors, um, which kind of annoys me a little bit because, you know, I get that. Yes it can be cyclical when you're actually you know in the chip making business not a company like asml who produces the machines to make them but at the end of the day
they I think you have to look inwards a little more and that that's what kind of rubbed me the the wrong way about the the call is there was just a lot of blaming on macro factors whereas you're looking at some of their competitors and they're they're doing actually quite well so that's where I think it doesn't hold up all that much and the last thing I'll say is their inventory levels are quite high which is never a good thing especially for semiconductor businesses because technologies goes forward pretty quickly if you have a high inventory of more outdated technology you have no choice but doing some pretty drastic price cuts so you're gonna see those margins margins that already yep. drop remain quite low for them i think i think they have like a it's a joint venture with amd i think i think yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's it yeah just say uh, you know <laughs> nothing like uh an Intel earnings call to to fire you up on the morning workout, Simone. This is this is why we appreciate you. Uh, let's move on to our final segment today, which is stocks on our watch list by EQ Bank. And I should I should note EQ Bank, they are a sponsor of ours, but they just launched this new card as well, the EQ Bank card. And I am about this close from just not having to use any big Canadian banks anymore. And I project that I'll have like more hair on my head in 40 years by not having to use the big the big <laughs> the big banks like you age like you're on you're on hold with a a big bank for like 45 minutes and you age like seven business years you you age at least 14 business days in in those 45 minutes so uh EQ Bank's process is just so much better and I'm saying that as a customer uh, not only just because they sponsor the podcast. So so thank you to EQ Bank. Um, do you want to kick us off first here? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to do kind of a hybrid here of earnings and the stock at the same time that I'll be doing the earnings of I have on my radar. So it is a company I already own, Canadian National Rail. So obviously, I think pretty much anyone should be familiar with uh, CNR here. I'll go over the full year result and just say afterwards why it's on my radar. All amounts here that I'm going to talk about are in Canadian dollars. Revenues increase 18% to $17 billion. Revenues up for all segments, although volume was a bit more volatile depending on the segment. Coal was their biggest mover in terms of volume with an increase of 33%. Automotive was second with an increase of 16%. However... I would not be surprised to see a pretty big decline, or at least maybe not a pretty big, but definitely a decline in the automotive automotive segment next year. I don't know if you heard, Braden, but Magna was revising in guidance uh, downwards. I think it was earlier this week. I didn't hear that, but uh, my I think two episodes when I talked about auto, I'm not surprised. I I think I think I'm going to get this right uh, on the auto side, not necessarily on any particular OEM, but uh, on the on the big macro with autos, and that's that's what Magna is. They are a a, a supplier of many many OEMs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now operating income increased 22 percent to 6.8 billion. So really, really good to be honest. Earnings per share increased eight percent to seven dollars forty four. The operating ratio improved one hundred and twenty basis point to sixty percent. For those not aware, operating ratio is a measure of profitability. It's widely used in the railroad industry. It's the company's operating expense as a percentage of revenue. So it's essentially the opposite of the operating margin. So the lower, the better here. 
Free cash will increase 29% to $4.3 billion. However, if you remove the one-time charges related to the failed Kansas City Southern bid last year, it was slightly down. Most of their major operating performance metrics increased. Hold on tight for this one, but they repurchased a whopping $4.7 billion worth of shares during the year. Uh, that's more than three times what they had done in 2021. Um, something to keep an eye on for the share repurchase, though, like that is higher than their free cash flow. So I'm assuming they use some of the cash. I'm just hoping that they're not using debt to do that. And they announced that they would be increasing their dividend by 8%, which is 20, that's 27% year of consecutive dividend increases for Canadian National Rail. So that is very impressive. They also announced the authorization to purchase up to 32 million shares for a 12-month period starting February 1st, 2023. They said that their bulk segment would remain strong for the first half of the year, but they are unsure for the second half. They also foresee a recession in 2023, and they mentioned that North American industrial production is expected to decline in 2023. They are guiding for low single-digit earnings per share increases, now, like I said, I do own CNR and it's a stock I've been wanting to add for quite some time, but I, it felt like the definitely the um, PE, for example, the valuation was definitely high and staying quite high despite some of the headwinds that we'll most likely be experiencing, you know, this year and next year. Uh, maybe not, but according to most economists, uh, we are looking at the very least at a mild recession. Um, so I think it could provide a, a really good opportunity if the valuation comes down a bit for long-term investors like myself to just be starting a position or adding to it. And I'll just say that Tracy Robinson has been doing, I think, a really good job as CEO almost a year now that she's been in the role. Um, I think it was uh, Jean-Jacques or Jean-Jacques Rue, if I remember correctly, before that. And they've clearly placed a focus on returning money to shareholders. The more bearish outlook for the short term for Canadian National Rail, like I said, I think could provide a really good opportunity to add to my position. Um, I think the total returns should continue to be really good for Canadian National Rail for years to come as long as you have a long time horizon. So that's why I'm pretty excited on this one, despite the outlook looking a little bit bearish for the next year, potentially two years. With something like this, like an a Lindy Infra business, which is a fancy finance bro jargon for saying uh, an infrastructure business that's going to last a long time, um, which the rails are a perfect example of that. You you want negative pessimism, like you you want to be able to buy the shares at a lower than historical multiple. Like bad news is good if you're trying to accumulate shares in a business that you know is just been in the ground for a hundred years and probably going to be in the ground for another thousand. Um, like that's the way I think about this business. And I think that I'm, I'm speaking for you, but I think that you're thinking a, on a similar wavelength here with it being on your watch list and the, the guidance being not great. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's, that's the reason I have it on my watch list. I'm just kind of looking for the, the multiples to, uh, you know, come down a little more and then uh, most likely will add to my position. I see this as a bit of a foundational stock for me. So I had something that I'd be very comfortable having like up to probably 
probably even more than 5% of my portfolio, not more than 10%, but 5 to 10% no issues with a company like Canadian National Rail. Yeah, I, uh, I, I can see why. I don't own either of them, but you know, it's one of those things where it's like, it shows up in your portfolio one day and you're like, you're not mad. You're, 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 never, you're never mad. Um, all right, I'm going to do something a little different today which is I'm going to share my entire watch list. I'm not going to do any deep dive into any of them like I usually do. I'm going to just share my entire watch list. And the reason for that is we, well, you can see here on the docs, Simone, we, we launched the sexiest dashboard application on Stratosphere. It's now a central hub when you log on to maintain different lists. What I do personally is I maintain a list for my portfolio and I maintain a different list of stocks that I do not own but are high on my watch list. And it's a list of about eh, 30-ish names that I'm looking at. What I do track there, because you can change the, the columns, I track the market cap, EV to EBITDA, the yield, three-year rev growth per share, and uh, the daily change on, on the price. So just simple columns. You can track anything, any valuation ratio that you want. I just keep it simple because I these are high quality businesses. And then it'll also just aggregate all your quarterly reports, press releases, transcripts, upcoming earnings for that list into one place. Man, I actually, I love it. All right, here's the list alphabetically. So in no particular order other than they're done alphabetically. Um, here we go. I just realized the alphabetical is picking A first, but then it's not doing the correct <laughs> the correct listing on the second letter. So uh, <laughs> ASML, Adobe, Airbnb, Amazon, Apple, Aritzia, Axon, BlackRock, CP Rail, Copart, Costco, CrowdStrike, Ferrari, Ice, Intuit, Live Nation, Lockheed Martin, London Stock Exchange, MSCI, Mercado Libre, NASDAQ, Starbucks, Stryker, Taiwan Semi, Texas Instruments, Home Depot, Thermo Fisher, Tyler Technologies, and U-Haul. Those are every single name on here that I do not own that is high on my watch list. Um, so I'm not going to go into any of these names, but I just wanted to highlight that this feature is available. It's beautiful. And you get a look into my actual, every single name that's on it today. Um, I think it's a pretty solid list. It's obviously like high quality compounder bros. Like there's there's not many like, unique uh i need to add more names that are off the board but i've kind of already added those into my portfolio so i need to i need to refresh this list with some smaller market cap names i think uh, on my watch list so i'll update you all when i do that yeah no it's uh, any thoughts on on the list no it's an interesting uh definitely interesting list i have like some of those names on my list as well so not too much to add i think yeah for the most part they're really good high quality uh, companies so um yeah not too much out there it, it it's a sleep well at night watch list 
Um, I'm challenging myself to put some names in here that I will, my reaction will be sleep less well at night because I need to learn more about them. Um, it's not that, that doesn't have anything to do with the business quality. I just need to add some more names in here that I, uh, I need to turn over more stones. Yeah. That's all. Um, and I think that every investor of individual equities should always be thinking of turning over more stones because that that's ultimately how you're going to generate more alpha in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I had a few REITs in there too. Yeah. I have no REITs. Like, well, I, I own Equinix. Yeah. No, but that's it. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's right. But that's a very specific sector, kind of subsector of the read. And I would say it's probably more, uh, it's kind of probably more dependent on the tech, right? On cloud and tech. But um, do you just think yeah. that reads are so beaten up that you like them a lot right now? Yeah, that's still, I mean, they're not as beaten up, but um, I think there's some definitely interesting replays. And obviously, um, you know, I've talked about it. Those are. Uh, I've been adding to REITs and starting position the past couple of months for that reason. But um, yeah, that's uh, probably add a couple, you know, just for fun, balance things out. Yeah, maybe I should. Maybe <laughs> I should. I mean, it was the most beaten up sector of 2022. So that doesn't always necessarily mean that there's value, but oftentimes, oftentimes it does. You know, you got to gotta go against the grain. Thanks for listening to the pod today. We massively appreciate every single one of you who tune into this show every Monday and Thursday or catch up when you can. Uh, we thank you very, very much, uh, truly. If you have not been to jointci.com, it is the Patreon page where Simone and I update our portfolios of our actual holdings every single month. And we're recording this on Friday, January 27th, so... So we got to do an update for uh, the jointci.com people very soon. So if you're not a subscriber, the time the timing is quite good right now at jointci.com. It's only $9 Canadian, so uh, it's very affordable. As well as stratosphere.io, I was talking about those dashboards. You can use this entirely for free. If you do want to unlock multiple lists, you do need to be on the first tier of paid plan, but you can use code TCI. Uh, from the podcast here and you'll get 15% off. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.